I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm James Goodlatte. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Rogan, MD. Je m'appelle Rick Safries, et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Holistic OBGYN Podcast, everybody. I've got a very, very special one for you today. Sandra Alvarez, she's a filmmaker. She made a film called Inhospitable, which is all about these hospital wars, the insurance wars in a particular part of the country that's very near and dear to me, my hometown of Pittsburgh. On one hand, you've got the UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which provides insurance and services, which we'll get into. And then we've got Highmark, which is inextricably linked with the Allegheny Health Network, which... I actually trained within when I fell in love with OBGYN and all this other stuff while I was in med school. What's happening here is that these large healthcare giants are trying to monopolize the care in large portions of the country. So what might happen is, okay, UPMC now has an insurance plan and they've got hospitals and doctors and everybody employed by them. And when they have that, they can control the costs and they can say, hey, listen, if you don't have our insurance so we can maximize profits off of your care, then you're not welcome here. So what has been happening in Pittsburgh is these large healthcare giants are saying, hey, I know you're getting your cancer treatment here, but you can't come here anymore, period, unless you switch to our insurance because we want all of that juice from the lemon. And Highmark, of course, is probably not some angel in disguise, But when you have this type of infighting amongst the people that are all claiming to be providing care to the community and this and that, it makes you wonder, what is going on here? And this film does a really, really good job of kind of clarifying some of these otherwise very confronting issues. So Sandra made this film. It's very, very well worth your time to find it and screen it. One other thing I wanted to add is that we love to point to big pharma and, and the federal and state policymakers. We even like to point to doctors. You know, they're charging too much money. They shouldn't be making that much money. Like, I think that's baloney. And I'm in the red. I've always been in the red. I've got $470,000 in medical school debt, and I'm charging very, very little for my services on the grand scheme of things. So we love to point our fingers at these different targets. But what about the hospitals themselves? The hospitals are just as responsible for driving up the insane, inorbitant healthcare costs in the United States. And I think that Sandra's film does a really, really good job of clarifying some of that. Without our sponsors, we can't make this show possible. So let's talk about them very briefly. The first is Fit for Birth. You go to any personal trainer, coach, health coach, whatever else, they probably haven't had specific training on how to care for pregnant and postpartum women through the lens of exercise and nutrition. Fortunately, there's companies like Fit for Birth. If you go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved, you'll save 20% on customized coaching If you're pregnant, postpartum, whatever, you're recovering from something even six months ago that happened related to your birth, you can find a fit for birth professional, get the best training, coaching, counseling available at a discount. So again, that's get fit for birth, all spelled out, slash beloved, you'll save 20% on their offerings. And then of course, Organifi. I love having Organifi as a sponsor because they make products that I use in my own life. And if you really, really care about what you're putting into your body, consider what's in the ingredient list of any beverage that you're consuming. 
If you look on the back, on the label of an Organifi product, you're going to see a wide variety of very natural, organic, glyphosate-free, very, very healthy superfoods, antioxidant-rich foods, etc. And the product I've been really digging is a new product that they just released. It's a spinoff on their gold. I talk about their gold all the time. You know, you blend it up with coconut milk and it makes this beautiful latte that you can take right before bed. It helps you ease into sleep. It doesn't do the things that all that crappy grogginess that alcohol or Benadryl or Ambien or CBD or THC does for you at night. It actually optimizes your sleep. It optimizes your recovery and helps you feeling fresh in the morning. Well, the spinoff is the gold pumpkin spice latte. And if <laughs> we're going to go through the ingredients list because it's just phenomenal how much Drew Canole, a friend of mine and the owner of Organifi, it's amazing how much nutrition he's able to cram into this product. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Organifi.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on your canister or subscription plan for their pumpkin spice latte. You're going to combine a scoop of that with some heavy, full fat, organic coconut milk. And you're going to make yourself a perfect latte. And here's what's in it. You're going to get turmeric loaded with antioxidants. You're going to get ginger. It's widely used across the world to support digestion, immune health, your stress response, which again is really critical for getting restful sleep. Organifi has included two functional mushrooms, reishi, the queen of mushrooms, and turkey tail mushroom. Turkey tail is rich in antioxidants. It supports recovery. And reishi has actually been most studied for its beneficial relaxation properties. So those are included. You get lemon balm. It's the calming herb. They throw in some magnesium, which you should be no stranger to. Magnesium is absolutely helpful for recovery and for your most restful sleep. They throw in some black pepper. They add some additional coconut milk where you're going to be getting some medium-trained triglycerides, which supports your gut microbiome, helps to improve your gut health. Add some acacia fiber, which is a prebiotic to support the good bacteria in your gut, and then Ceylon cinnamon. You've got yourself a beautiful, perfect pumpkin spice latte for your evening beverage while you're watching Game of Thrones or whatever it is that you like to do after dinner and the kids are down. So go to Organifi.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on their pumpkin spice latte. We can't do this show without the support of our sponsors. And I've handpicked the sponsors because they make products that I use myself. I recommend my family and clients. When my wife was pregnant, she was taking all these things. Like I really, really believe in these brands. Support them so we can keep making this show. Alrighty, without further ado, my guest on this episode is Sandra Alvarez, the filmmaker behind Inhospitable, and the title is On the Secret War Among Hospitals, which is driving up healthcare costs. A pretty self-explanatory title. I hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. Sandra, welcome. Welcome to the Holistic OB-GYN podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure. I saw your film, which is, well, tell everybody the name of your film and give me the elevator speech. I've never heard about it. What have you captured in this 90 minutes? It's a documentary feature film and it's called Inhospitable. And it looks at the ways that hospitals are driving up our healthcare costs. That's just the one liar. Yeah. Yeah. So what we do in the film is we're looking at the ways that hospital consolidation and a lot of you know issues around hospitals are driving up prices, but also affecting communities and patients and workers. That's great. Yeah. So what's important, I think, about this conversation is everybody out there right now, well, stuff has maybe changed a little bit with COVID, but Mm -hmm. for years, the pharmaceutical companies were our worst enemies, right? And then that has maybe changed a little bit in the hearts of people, but people still can see that like when a pharmaceutical, let's say the CEO of Moderna or something, they just got paid out 900 million or something for their work on the vaccines. You know, people still see that as like, God, something sounds wrong about that. These are supposed to be public health safety measures or whatever. 
And then they also look at salaries of physicians. And they see the whole system as just this corrupt, profit-driven thing, which I actually think it probably is in a lot of regards. But people forget, oh, and not to mention the insurance companies, but people forget about the role of hospitals in this conversation, which is exactly why I think your film is so critical, that it's not just these common enemies. There's also the hospital systems themselves have a big role in driving up prices. And your film focuses on the Pittsburgh area, correct? Yep. The large healthcare system there, it's called UPMC, which used to stand for University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, but now they're unaffiliated. So it just is UPMC. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. UPMC. Everybody thinks this is an academic hospital system. They are teaching some of the brightest minds. They're doing it all out of the goodness of their hearts. They are a nonprofit which is an important part of the conversation because until recently, Jeffrey Romoff, who was the CEO, I think he stepped down a couple of years ago, maybe in- Last year, I think. 2021. Okay. So he was making roughly $10 million a year at a nonprofit hospital system. And the sort of crux of the conversation is who cares that people are making money? Who cares that there are these big hospitals that are driving up prices? However- any competitors in the market are being squelched at the cost of the people seeking care within the hospitals of Western PA, which is actually not just UPMC's domain anymore. Doesn't UPMC have something like, I want to say there's something like 20 to 25 hospitals worldwide, but they're all over the region now, right? Yeah, I think they have one in Italy. But I think that yeah. that's that what you just said is the point. You know, we in this country, you know, as a society have decided that we want private businesses to run our healthcare. So if that's the argument, and if it's like, you know, capitalistic system, sure. you know, yeah. let the market, let the market decide. It out. Yeah, exactly. The problem is the market is not deciding, right? We're getting to these large, large monopolies that are driving out all competition. And basically, you know, the experts say in the film, the hospitals are able to charge very high prices because there's just no competitors. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like they have it both ways at the moment. And on top of that, they don't pay taxes. Yeah. Uh, right. Most of them. I can't say they, but yeah, the majority of hospitals in the U.S. are nonprofit charities and do not pay taxes. Yeah. So this is a problem. And having been a, I told you this right before we started recording, but I was born in Bethel Park, which is just south of Pittsburgh. It's one of those very white middle class suburbs. And my mom worked as an executive administrator at UPMC. Her salary was in part paid by the University of Pittsburgh Physicians, which is a private group of physicians that is contracted by UPMC, this megalithic giant, literally and figuratively, in Western PA. Mm-hmm. And when I told her about the film, she was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's what's happening. Like, I mean, she had thought about it, but when you say UPMC to Pittsburghers, it's very confronting because UPMC is everywhere. They're on, if mm-hmm. you go into the airport, they have an entire mural down the main drag of UPMC. Yeah, and we how filmed they... it. It's in the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So watching your film was also a little bit nostalgic, but it was also like, man, they're so inextricably entwined, the economics of the Pittsburgh region and this giant business, which is UPMC. Yeah. So you're from Southern Florida, right? You're living in Southern Florida? Yeah. Tell me about why did you choose this project? Yeah, well, also just to speak to what you were saying, it's also confronting and conflicting, right? Because UPMC, people love the service that they get there if they can get it, right? If they can can access it. it. But, you know, they do have top quality medical care that they're providing. They have groundbreaking this and that or whatever. And so it's not that 
people are complaining about the quality of the services. It's really about the cost and the access. Yeah. That, that's the big question. I think when you were talking about insurance companies and pharmaceuticals, I mean, they're such easy villains, right? But hospitals are tough because that's where I had my baby. That's yeah. the doctor that saved my father's life. You know, it, we're really connected to the doctors and the people that are actually physically helping sure. us and saving sure. our lives. So it's not as easy as a target as saying, eh, insurance companies, you know, they're just taking all my money or whatever. But how did I get interested? You know, it's no secret that we have a broken healthcare system in this country. And as you say, you, you watch the presidential debates, both Republican and Democrat, and you hear, you know, insurance companies, and big pharma, and, but you don't hear hospitals. I had to kind of dig pretty deep to find some mention of hospital Interesting. in those debates. So there's just no mention of it. And I wanted to know why. And it turns out that it's really not, it's a bipartisan question, right? Because on both sides, you're not really hearing anybody talking about it. And realistically, now I know, you know, hospitals are contributing to all parties because <laughs> yeah. they have a lot of power. So for me, it was just trying to figure out, okay, what's hospitals role here? And as I started digging and digging and digging and learning about this, I just kept becoming more shocked that more of us don't know about what's happening with hospitals especially because even if you're not a patient at a hospital and you're relatively healthy, a lot of the stuff that's going on with the nonprofits and not paying property taxes, it's affecting the communities, right? You have UPMC that takes up, like you say, you can drive anywhere, you turn the corner, there's a UPMC building, there's a UPMC sign. So all of those properties have been taken off the tax roll, right? Every time UPMC builds, buys you know, a new lot and builds a building, that takes it off the tax rolls. So you have a public school across the street from a gleaming, beautiful building with marble lobbies and sculptures that's crumbling and rat infested, you know, the school across the public school, because they're not getting enough funding because the city or the county is not able to raise that much money in tax. So it's a problem that actually is affecting everybody, even if you're not a hospital patient, which eventually I think you could argue most of us will be at some point, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. And I want to get into this battle because there's these two major medical systems. I actually trained at Allegheny General or Allegheny, it's called Allegheny Health Network now, which is actually sort of linked with the Highmark system because they were really supporting the Highmark patients when UPMC developed their own insurance model, right? And started trying to just monopolize the region, which they've largely done. So there's this battle between these two insurance companies, which are sort of inextricably linked with separate healthcare systems, the UPMC being far greater in their market share, I think, over Highmark. Although I don't really know, even if it was 50-50, it's going to eventually be tipping that direction. So you brought up this lawsuit that was brought to the the attorney general of the state of Pennsylvania, I presume, or was it of Allegheny County? Yeah, no, it was, it was the state of Pennsylvania attorney general, Josh Shapiro, who's now running for governor. That's where I've heard that name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he- That's how I found out about the story, because in February of 2019, he announced that he was suing UPMC, which through my research, I realized was incredibly rare for a public official to take on such a powerful entity that's so entrenched in the community and is, you know, on paper, a charity and doing all these wonderful things. So it's not an easy target for a politician to take on. And he did. So that was really interesting to me. So I started tracking that story and started reaching out to local organizations and advocates, patient advocates were working with patients. But yeah, what was going on in Pittsburgh, and it's super complicated. And actually in the film, we have a three minute 
animated piece that's just explaining this battle. But, you know, basically it was, you know, UPMC is the dominant health medical provider and Highmark is the dominant insurer in the region. And so UPMC decided to get its own healthcare, you know, insurance company so that they could do both. And so Highmark was really concerned about that because that was going to raise their prices if UPMC all of a sudden could charge whatever they wanted because they had their own insurance company. So then Highmark's to add competition to the region started their own medical provider, you know, which you're saying is called uh, Allegheny Health Network. And so it's basically this battle of Coke and Pepsi, and they're just battling out for market share. And they're just, you know, (laughs) in the film, we have two buildings literally beating each other up. You know, It's an awesome graphic. I love that part. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, the issue is that, you know, it's not Coke and Pepsi and it's not just soft drinks, right? It's literal people's lives who were in the balance between this competition of these two giants. And on top of that, they are nonprofits. So their main mission, right, for any nonprofit in this country is to benefit the community, right? So which they absolutely were not doing. And so what was ended up happening was that UPMC decided, okay, well, we're going to shut you up. I'm doing like a very simplified version here, but yeah, you know, yeah, UPMC yeah. said, okay, hi, Mark, your insured clients are no longer able to come to UPMC. And so, you know, they were the dominant insurer provider in the region. So that was shutting out people who are in the middle of their cancer treatment, people who are in the middle of like very, very complicated heart conditions. Pregnancy, heart condition, like literally just no more healthcare. Yeah. And so they had the option of going to Highmark's, you know, medical provider, which was Allegheny Health Network, but they weren't providing the specialized care that the folks needed at the UPMC systems because UPMC has all these very specialized hospitals. And one of them is a top cancer hospital in the country. So there was that battle. And so I think what happened with the story, and we just kind of were in the right place at the right time for the film, because this never really happens in healthcare where there's kind of just a moment that occurs where everyone says, no, we can't take this anymore. And the community just comes together and starts fighting. It feels like it's like the death of a thousand cuts with healthcare because we're all kind of in our bubbles dealing with our high medical bills and figuring out, you know, how are we going to pay for our food and our rent and also these bills, but we're all kind of in our own little bubbles. But what happened here is that this one event triggered patients to actually come together and they started coming together in town halls, which, you know, we have footage of in the film and uh, local politicians got involved, the media got involved and there's a real community push to get these two entities to start working together, which they actually did. They, you know, spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) And I think actually, yeah, there is a bit of a resolution at the end, but I'm not so sure it's going to be resolved completely. There's some very bad blood there. Yeah. It's not a long-term solution for sure. (laughs) No. And there's also like a set period of time that they agreed to work together, right? Like five years or 10 years or something. Well, it was 10 years, but that was in 2019. So yeah. So we're coming up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we're coming up in a couple of years then on a rehashing of this whole thing. So maybe it was a temporary solution, but yeah, at the time for those particular patients who were needing that care immediately, it was a win, but for the community, it was just a delay. I want to talk a little bit about what you found as the actual drivers of care in hospitals. But first, I also want to share two things. One is this bad blood runs quite deep, even into medical education. There's a family friend of mine who's finishing medical school, and he's now applying to orthopedic surgery programs. If he applies to Allegheny Health Network or Allegheny General Hospital, they have a big orthopedic program, a very good one, actually. 
And I have a couple of friends that I went to med school who ended up there and are like in prestigious positions everywhere, but they won't get a job if they did their residency at Allegheny General working for UPMC's <laughs> incredible department. So there's this funny little thing amongst the older attendings there where it's like, yeah, yeah you were trained at, at those guys and we know that you stink. And so it's not really directly related to patient care, but this blood is... It's a whole ecosystem. Yeah. It's a whole ecosystem, yeah, where there's just mud being slung left and right. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to share is that these are two nonprofit hospital systems. In fact, most of the hospitals in the United States are actually nonprofits. The difference is, as a physician is I wouldn't be working for a nonprofit. I would be contracted privately through like University of Pittsburgh Physicians. The same goes for Kaiser. Did you guys look at Kaiser by any chance in the film? I can't remember. I did for my research. And I certainly asked all the experts we interviewed in the film. I certainly asked them about Kaiser. We were thinking about including them, but we ended up not. It was something that a lot of the experts pointed to as a pretty well organized system that was working in terms of the checks and balances of having your own insurance company and being the medical provider. Right. But at the same time, the workers, you know, they're protesting and they're striking. So it's not a perfect system either. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So I did my residency at Kaiser and I was there for four years, very hard years in the beautiful Los Angeles. I was in Hollywood. It was an awesome gig because I get to walk outside and go to the beach and surf when I was off and didn't happen very often. But when I was able to, we, we'd go and Kaiser is also, you know, famously one of the best providers of, let's just call it population healthcare. And being in LA County, you have to wonder like, gosh, if they're a nonprofit, they're probably doing quite a bit for the community. And if you go to LA now, especially after the three years of COVID, there's as many homeless there as you used to see in like the Bay Area. So we have these tent cities that have grown, et cetera. And I was looking at the head of Kaiser. What's his name? Gosh. Well, anyways, he's making something like, oh, here it is. Bernard Tyson. Yeah, I think he passed, actually. Yeah, he passed, though. He passed away or he stepped down? I think he passed away. Okay, well, he was making $18 million in 2018. So to your point about this school with the rats, much in need of renovations in the Pittsburgh public school system, which my sister was actually a teacher there, it was hard. Like, they couldn't get money for anything. And so, you know, you consider across the street from this incredibly beautiful Kaiser building that I did my training at. There is human feces on the ground. There are people slumped on the side and we're stepping over them to get yeah. to our cars. Like it is confronting. And when you actually look at it from even just a thousand feet away, you're like, huh, you guys are a nonprofit. And like there is squalor all over on the campus. I mean, like it was just hard to believe. And then you consider the CEO is making $18 million a year. Couldn't Kaiser have come up with a better structuring in order to be better serving the community. I'm not trying to pass judgment. I'm just trying to get people to appreciate what I was able to see. And I don't think it's very, very different in Pittsburgh. You know, there's something like 12 hospitals in LA County that are part of the Kaiser system. And, you know, it just makes you wonder, like, what is the role of a hospital? Is the hospital a place to care for the community or is a hospital meant to be driven by profits through the, you know, let the market decide? I don't know if there's a right answer to that. But right. what I do right. know is $18 million, whenever people in the streets that most need your care can't even afford a bite to eat. Something doesn't add up there. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, there are arguments that say, you know, the hospitals should just focus on medical care and that's what they're good at. That's what they're specialized at. And that's what they should focus on. But if that's the case, then they should pay taxes pay taxes, and yeah. allow the, the city and the community to decide what they need to do with that money and how that money can benefit the community. I do think it's a lot to put on a hospital and say, hey, fix a homeless problem. 
fix the child poverty problem, you know, but you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. Your cake is delicious and you're eating it too. So, (laughs) yeah. So, and that was actually, since the film was completed, there was a study that came out that we've been promoting on our social media that compared the community care and the community payments that nonprofits were providing compared to for-profits. And it was the same and sometimes less because for-profits also have to provide community care. You know, this is explained in the film, but if you don't have insurance and you walk into an emergency room and it's a for-profit hospital, then they have to provide the care, right? They can't turn you away. So the for-profits also provide a lot of community and free care and charity care to anyone who needs it, who needs care. So another thing that nonprofits will claim is one of the things that they do to provide for the community and why they should justify their tax status is training of their staff. Well, for-profits have to train their staff too. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's a lot of things that they're claiming on their tax forms to justify their tax status, which is that is also being done by for-profit hospitals. So they're really not justifying it. And, you know, UPMC, I think at this point, will say they have a million dollars in charity care to the community. And that kind of sounds like a lot, but it's also how are you defining what is charity care? So once you kind of lop off the free care that you give to people that come in that for-profits also have to as well, and you know, anything else that you claim, like training your staff, it doesn't leave a lot for the actual community and the money that's going to benefit the community. Yeah, totally. And I'll just add one more thing. There's no system in place right now, statewide or nationally, that's holding them accountable for that. You know, we interviewed Chuck Grassley, who at the time was the head of the Senate Finance Committee, and he was throwing his hands up and he was very frustrated because he was kind of going to the IRS and saying, you're just looking at these forms and check and saying, okay, here's tax status. You're not actually looking to see if they're and IRS was coming back saying, well, we don't have the resources for that. You know, these That's are multi-billion dollar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these are multi-billion dollar industries. But again, it kind of comes back to they probably should just pay taxes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just, right. That's the conclusion I kept coming back to over and over again. Yeah. Especially if by taxation, that's the only way that we can provide the much needed services for the poor, the houseless, et cetera. So if we're going to say taxes are important and we have tax dollars to pay for those services, then who's going to pay those taxes? Yes, the people, but also these giant businesses that are paying their CEOs 10 million, period. I mean, it just seems kind of nonsensical, but I know it's far more complicated than we're making it sound right now. So healthcare economics of the world of economics is probably one of the most mischievous and the most convoluted that I've ever tried to study. And I have studied it quite a bit. And it's very, very hard to apply a basic principles of economics to the provision of healthcare. So it's really not a black and white answer for me either. So you mentioned, just for anybody who's curious, when you walk into a hospital, The Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, which was part of the COBRA Act back in 1986, that's actually what you were referring to. It doesn't mean that that person's necessarily going to walk out without having to pay anything. In fact, if you have a mailing address, they're going to probably send you an itemized list of everything that you need to come up with in order to justify, even if a portion of it was through charity, oftentimes they're still receiving bills. Can you talk a little bit about what Thank you for making that point because that's very important. (laughs) Yeah. The care is provided. We saved your life and you still have to pay us, which I remember when I was in residency, people would come in and one of our attendings was like, yeah, I think they were like somehow affiliated with the bean counters and someone. He was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that 
we could just chalk this one up to a charity case. And I didn't know what that meant. I was like, what do you mean a charity case? Like we're a hospital, we take care of people. But this is actually what they were referring to is that Kaiser only gives out so much money towards charity care and the rest they're going to recoup by billing anybody who has any asset worth anything. So it's a problem, especially for the lower middle class, because they do have some assets. They do have a home mailing address. They're maybe working three jobs and now they're broke and bankrupt because of these hospital bills. I mean, I would argue middle class at this point, too. (laughs) Touche. Touche. Yeah, we have such a huge inequality gap in our country now. Let's talk about, in your research, what did you find were the primary drivers of hospitalization costs? Like, who's actually deciding these costs? Or how is UPMC actually driving up the cost, practically speaking? You know, that's definitely out of my range of expertise. I can certainly connect you to, I mean, I have different answers to that, but I don't feel like I can speak to that in a very kind of holistic way. You know, I think what I found just as a documentary filmmaker, not as a healthcare policy expert or anything like that, is it's shrouded in a lot of mystery. Yeah. It's a black box. Yeah. It's actually very unclear. And, you know, all these studies that have come out now where you go to one hospital and, you know, they'll charge you 60000 for a C-section and you go to the hospital two counties down and it will be 15000 So I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As far as what's driving hospital prices, right, the main thing that would be found and all the experts that we interviewed in the film is hospital consolidation, right? So it's when healthcare systems are buying up all the local hospitals and creating a monopoly and as well as the physician system, right? They're gobbling up all the physicians groups as well, which is something we really wanted to go further down into in the film, but we just kind of did a little snippet. We had a larger piece that was cut, but it just didn't make it into the film. But the way that physicians are squeezed and actually our interviewees was telling stories about, you know, these physicians being threatened completely that they will be shut out of the hospital if they didn't, you know, join up and sell their practices. So there's a lot of predatory behavior, again, non-profit, the hospitals that were doing this work. But yeah, that was basically the main crux of the argument. I mean, it's basic economics, right? You know, if you have a monopoly, you can charge what you want. And, you know, the insurance companies don't really have much of a say. I mean, the companies can say, okay, no, we won't pay you those prices, but, you know, people need their care. And so what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. You know, what? something that was coming to me in order to illustrate, when I started diving into healthcare economics, and I was going into palliative care and hospice, which is actually a more quality-driven specialty versus a surgical specialty like OBGYN, where you actually have a dollar amount associated with every procedure and billing code and all that. For palliative care, I'm not really doing anything. How do you bill for one hour of holding space as a family copes with a new cancer diagnosis? It's not as you know, what do we have? Like the CPT codes is really how we would justify our benefit to patients. And you don't have a CPT code for an hour spent counseling family on the realities of the risk benefits alternatives to chemo, for example. So when I got into the quality versus quantity world, I found this great video that everybody should check out. You probably saw this as well. It was by a guy named, he has like a comedy channel on YouTube. Adam ruins everything. Have you seen the Uh video? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll link that in the show, but it really does give you a great, it's a comedic satire. They walk into a hospital and he's trying to advise like, here's why it costs this amount. And it just gets more and more complicated as you go through the hospital. He can't even explain it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. And at the end, she's like, okay. And her name's called at the waiting window and she goes in to, to see the doctor. So we're not going to get to the bottom of this in this conversation, but I do want to impress upon people just how complicated it is. And I want to bring up, I think you did a fine job of answering that. I know that you're not a healthcare economist or policy analyst or anything, but if you go to the hospital, let's say to have a baby, and let's say you walk in and you want to pay in cash. Generally speaking, the insurance companies in the hospitals are negotiating a price, right? So you might find out one price over here at this hospital, one price at this hospital, and it's going to vary even by hospital, depending on which insurance plan you have. So let's say, you know, you go into the hospital, you show your insurance card, the hospital is going to say to the insurance company, hey, we took care of your client here, you owe us five grand. Well, the insurance company might say, well, we're only going to give you 2,500. So there's an incentive on the side of the hospital to charge in excess for the price of you know, goods and services provided so that they can recoup as much of the actual costs in order to also get a profit. Now, that doesn't mean that they're making 500% profit. Maybe they are, but in many cases, they want to make some profit. So if you actually go in and you want to pay with cash and you ask for an itemized list of what was done, the prices associated with those things are sometimes shocking. <laughs> So like blood chemistries, I just pulled up a bill here online and it was like blood chemistries would be like, we're going to do blood work every day, right? So for a three-day hospital stay, $1,400 to draw your blood and send it to the lab when you may have not even said, yeah, can we do that? Like you didn't get the option right. to choose from the menu of what you want and don't want, which is fine. You maybe don't know what you don't want and don't want. The point being that if you looked at the itemized list, you'd be like, how on earth did that box of Cheerios cost you $20? So right. that's a part of this. Is that the primary driver as to how these hospital systems are maximizing profits just by trying to overcharge the insurance company, sometimes at the cost of the patient, maybe inadvertently? Yeah, you know, what's interesting, there's two points that are interesting, and I don't know if I'm directly answering your question, but I wanted to bring them up. One is that's also a way around claiming so much more in hospital costs. You say, you know, someone came in for a procedure, the procedure cost. $20,000 when like, that's just kind of a made up number. And then they said, but they could only pay X amount because they're low income. So the difference was the dirty care, but that number is just based on nothing. It's not based on actual costs. It's just based on a number that they came up with that. It's like, okay, that's what this is going to cost. So that's another issue is like a lot of these numbers just aren't real. And so it's just hard because they're claiming a loss you know, for certain procedures or certain, right. you know, patients, but we just don't know. And then the other thing, there's a second point that it's hard for me to really know because nobody from the hospital, you know, the hospital groups, even the, you know, the main lobby group, the American Hospital Association, they wouldn't talk to me, not even on record, uh, off record. So it's just hard for me to actually know what's happening internally and why they're doing certain things. And yeah, yeah. I just don't know. I just know what the effects are on the patients, you know? I wonder if maybe you could put me in touch with somebody that you've met along the way. That might be an, another additional deep dive into some of the costs that we're actually talking about. I do recall when people come to me for care, I do all out of pocket now. I don't work with insurance companies or medical administrators, you know, hospital administrators. I do my own thing. And people are like, man, it's going to be expensive to hire somebody and pay out of pocket. But when you consider actually even how health insurance works in our nation, you may or may not know this, but it's actually not even something to be known. It's just the reality of being a U.S. citizen. You pay your taxes for health care, which covers Medicare, Medicaid for the most part. You pay your co-payments. You pay your monthly premium out of your paycheck without even thinking about it. It's 200 bucks a month or whatever. 
unless you have a really, really high premium low deductible plan. But regardless, you pay a deductible and all of those payments have to come out of your pocket before your insurance even kicks in. So the cost of healthcare is even absconded by the methods of employer-based insurance. Not to say that that's a wrong way to do it. I just don't think anybody really appreciates how much we're being charged. And that's probably why it's no surprise when people hear that we spend something like $15,000 per head per year for all of the U.S. citizens to have health care. And I remember the other thing I was going to say, which is to speak to that point, when I, this didn't make it in the film either, but when we were talking to the city council member, I think her name is Deb Gross in Pittsburgh, she was telling us that a lot of the UPMC workers, you know, not the higher skilled, you know, some of the folks that were working in the cafeteria or whatever, a lot of them were not being paid a living wage and they couldn't afford housing. And so there was a housing crisis of people just not being able to afford. So the, the city had to raise taxes on the tax paying businesses and individuals so that they can take that money and put it towards affordable housing for the employees of UPMC who were not being paid a living wage. Right, right. So again, you're talking about all the ways that we're paying for healthcare before even paying for a medical service is another way we're subsidizing these nonprofits in all these little ways that you're just, you don't really think about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I just wanted to add that you had a question about that. <laughs> Do you think that that's the primary way that hospitals are driving up costs predominantly as to, as to what they're actually charging their patients? I think that was my original question. Yeah. I mean, I really don't know, but you know, I also say there was something that happened, you know, when they passed the ACA, which again was one of those like good intentions things. And they were trying to restrict the amount of money that insurance companies would make as a profit on their customers. But what ended up happening was they said, okay, you can only make a certain percentage of what the payments are, right? That you can only make a certain percentage of profit of what the payments of your customers are. So what ended up happening, unfortunately, is incentivize the insurance companies. Like when you say, when you were talking about the negotiations that happened between the insurance companies and, and the providers, and they said, well, this costs 5,000 and they said, well, it costs 2,500. It's now incentivized the insurance companies to actually say, okay, you're right. It does cost 5,000. And then they just pass that on to their customers and raise the prices of how much insurance costs. And then they get a higher percentage of profit. Yeah. So it's really messed up. It's so messed up. Yeah. <laughs> And I love the sort of candor you bring to this because this is two people who care deeply about this. We're both highly educated. We're both incredibly good at reading stuff. And for you and I, we're both still kind of like, God, this is complicated. So how is the, the common <laughs> citizen of the United States supposed to understand this, let alone you know somebody who's maybe not as literate or whatever else? So yeah. a minute ago, I Googled real quickly to see what is the average out-of-pocket expenses for childbirth even in the people who go to the hospitals, actually, this is only looking at people in hospitals, the out-of-pocket expenses can still exceed $10,000. And that is even with insurance. So I right. don't know. I mean, I have to dig a little deeper to see where that data came from. But it's no surprise that women are actually starting to... Do you have children, Sandra? I do. And I'll tell you, I had both of them outside of a okay, hospital. Perfect, I, have a, great. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And my one-year-old is born in my bathtub. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know... Very quickly, we had one in the hospital, the first, and then the second was at home, 20 feet from here. And the first one, I'm an OBGYN, of course, so my wife was grappling with the contractions they were picking up. I was like, okay, this is definitely labor. 
who knows if it's going to be two days, three days of labor. We have no idea. So let's buckle up. I made some lemonade. We lit some candles. And about an hour in, she got on all fours on the ground and had her arms on the couch. And I was like, oh, no. Okay. Well, hey, honey, why don't we draw a bath upstairs? And made her a bath. And then she started rocking her hips back and forth. And I was like, let me just do a gentle exam. And like there was just a baby head in her vagina. And I was like, okay, we're going, we're going. We got her in the car and rushed her to the hospital. But not that we needed to, but that was her choice. That's where she wanted to be. And so, you know, more power to her. But the reason I even brought this topic of childbirth up is that as people are choosing more and more to have home births, you look at the data and the vast majority of people who are having home births are actually paying out of pocket. So home birth under the care of a midwife is becoming, it used to always be that this is where the lower class, the poor, the immigrants, et cetera, were being cared for by yeah. midwives because they were desperate for some care and midwives, their one little bastion of credibility, so to speak, laid sure. in childbirth. And by the way, I think midwives are some of the greatest gifts oh, to yeah. childbirth. So don't misconstrue <laughs> my words. I have yeah, yeah. 70 episodes before this just hailing midwives. So this is just an understanding of where it used to be. And now it's actually a privileged thing to be able to pay for a home birth at home with a midwife. So most midwives, I've got plenty of midwives I collaborate with, and they're charging anywhere from three to $5,000 for the entire package. Yeah. I think mine was about 5000 And I felt like that was a deal. Yeah, you know, because if you're getting based. everything. It's all included right there, apart from maybe ordering a couple of supplies or whatever. Yeah, but I have the privilege to say that $5,000 is a deal, Exactly, right? I mean. exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, let's reconsider. Is it a deal? Like, is it truly a deal? Because if it's true that by going into the hospital, you might get hit with over $10,000 worth of bills from the moment you're diagnosed with pregnancy and they charge you for that $400 ultrasound to confirm dating or whatever, every urine dipstick, every... MA that has their, you know, is involved in your care, every doctor visit, all of the glucola tests, all the blood work, everything, if you add it all up, you're probably paying far more out of pocket than the midwife who's got four kids of their own and is going to drive a hundred miles into the desert to see you. You're probably getting a deal by actually hiring a midwife and having a home birth. Even if you don't have insurance, it's probably going to cost you more to have a hospital-based birth nowadays than it would be to be at home. So a lot of midwives are like, people can't afford midwife care. And it's like, they can if they understood the healthcare economics of what's actually happening. Yeah. Well, I was still paying for my health insurance on top of that. So. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in yeah. some ways, it's like the cheapest way to have a baby is to just scrap insurance altogether and pay for the care as you need it throughout the pregnancy, yeah. especially if you're yeah. healthy and you're low risk and all this other stuff. So yeah. And, but you know, then if you have a complication... You need it. Then you, you know, need it because otherwise you're going to pay $100,000 out of pocket. <laughs> yeah. I mean, heaven forbid you end up in the operating room. I think I saw something like a C-section costs anywhere from eleven dollars to $13,000 out of pocket. I mean, that is a lot of money for a half hour of my time. And granted, it's you're not paying for the surgery. You're paying for the experience that a doctor has to train and everything else and all the education. But I wouldn't be able to afford right now if you asked me to, well, I could, I could find $13,000 but if that ends up happening, we're in the hospital. This is why people go into bankruptcy. They have to get extra jobs with their newborns. They have to sell their house. They have to move into a trailer. Like this is the reality of being, quote, sick in the United States. And I would argue that pregnancy is not a disease, nor is birth a medical procedure. Sure, sure, so yeah. if you don't want the sick care offered by UPMC, perhaps you just pay out of pocket and then you actually save yourself money, which is hard to wrap our heads around. But in some cases, it actually might work out that way. Absolutely. I started working on this in January of 2019. 
He was born April 2019, which also tells you how crazy I am that I was also having a baby and working on an independent <laughs> yeah, right. You have to be the other woman. Two babies. Yeah. And then during post-production, right, during the editing, I had my second baby. So I have two inhospitable babies. But I will say that certainly my experience with my research on the film informed my decision to not have the babies at the hospital. And again, you know, I was healthy and everything was, but yeah, you know, as far as just some, you were saying it's so complicated and how does a, a regular individual, our editor of the film, who obviously learned so much about this too, she's just, you know, a documentary filmmaker as well, but she recently had a procedure done at the hospital. And because of the film, she went back and negotiated her own bill down. Because it was something that we had learned through the the film is that, you know, if you go back and say, this is too high, this is ridiculous, I'm not paying this, I'm not even taking this to my insurance company, they'll just knock a couple thousand dollars off of the bill, which also tells you how fake the prices are where they could just say, okay, no problem. Don't even have to run it by my supervisor, (laughs) just knock it off. The other thing that I always, when people say, what is it that we can do, right, as individuals, Definitely. The film is a lot more about, you know, informational and educating people on the problem. We don't have a lot of time to really talk about specific solutions in the film. There's a lot of resources on our website. If you go to about the issue, so inhospitablefilm.com, if you go to about the issue, there's a lot of different resources there from policy suggestions to individual resources that people can do if they have these high bills. But I would say you know, Elizabeth Rosenthal, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, who was one of our interviewees, she has a book called An American Sickness. And I would definitely recommend for everyone to read that because it gives you an overview of the whole system, but it also gives like very practical things that you can do. An American Sickness, yeah, by Elizabeth Rosenthal. I just found it. I will definitely link that in the episode. We're going to have a lot of links for this one because yeah, if this isn't stirring someone's pot, maybe this isn't the right show for them, but I love to <laughs> to get into these black boxes where there's not a really easy answer. Yeah. I'm also curious, since you've made the film, have you found that there are similar Although situations? there is an easy answer. Hey, Tess. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> that would probably solve at least some of our issues. I mean, when I was at Kaiser, I already was interested in this. Like, I was a bad boy. Not a bad boy. I mean, I was insubordinate, let's just say. <laughs> and always very curious and thoughtful since I was a little kid. In fact, I was on the phone with my mom yesterday, and I was like, I was actually telling her about the interview I'm doing with you, and I was like, I'm glad I'm out of the system because if I kept talking like this, I'm not so sure any hospital would want to hire me. And she's like, well, you're kind of like me when I was little and we got into a conversation like that. But for anybody out there who works in the hospital system, this is what we were trained to do is to work within the hospital system. It's kind of going above and beyond to start asking these questions and demanding things of the CEO of Kaiser or whatever. But quite frankly, if we put 18 million, instead of you making 18 million a year, Kaiser CEO, what if you made 10 million? Could you be happy with 10 million? Where would we use the $8 million otherwise? Could we lower costs? Could we provide more charity care? I mean, obviously I'm simplifying it, but that is a pretty darn easy first step is if you're going to call yourself nonprofit, act like a nonprofit. Maybe we change the tax code a little bit. Maybe you pay some extra in taxes. We drop down the wages of the people who are not even providing clinical care and we go from there and then we go into phase two. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, we certainly focus on the CEO pay in the film too, because that is something so tangible and something you can really get angry about. But I think, I can't remember who it was, but one of the experts we were speaking to made a really good point 
that like Kaiser is, you know, multi-billion dollars, right? So it's like, I mean, the system is a $1 trillion system, right? But if we're like, okay, whoever the CEO of Kaiser is, because I don't know who it is right now, but if we're going to pay you $18 million, but you're going to run an incredibly efficient company who is going to lower costs for the patients, who's going to provide for the community, who's going to pay their workers a living wage and probably higher than a living wage and take care of their employees too. And that's all going to happen. Fine. Take $18 million. Like whatever it costs for you to make a better system and what you think you deserve. Great. Such a good argument. Cause it's like, yeah, it's, it's not really about like the number of how much they're getting. It's that they're getting this and also, (laughs) you know, not doing the things that they should be doing. You know, it's like one of the arguments for hospital consolidation that the hospitals make all the time is if we can all get on the same page, coordination of care, that all sounds great. I would love that. I would love to be able to go to one doctor and another, and, you know, they're all talking to each other and they're on the same system. That all sounds great. And they're like, you know, it will have efficiency and, lower our costs. Like that's always their thing, like lower our costs. And it does actually turn out that they are able to lower their costs. But the problem is that those savings are not being passed on to the customers, right? To the patients themselves. So that's another thing. It's like, well, if you're going to consolidate for the reasons of being more efficient and lowering your costs, then you got to lower prices. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the conversation around nonprofit and for-profit is also a little bit perversed because people expect that if you're a nonprofit, that there should be no profits. Nobody should make any money. This should just be a collection of martyrs that are going to die on the cross, you know, the cause of whatever it is, the cause du jour. Right. And there was a really good TED talk. I'll send it to you. It's Dan Pelota. The way we think about charity is dead wrong. Now, I don't agree with everything he says, but he's like, listen, if you're running a nonprofit, you have to think of it as a for-profit business. Otherwise, you're just scraping by every step of the way when you could utilize basic business principles with an earnest and compassionate heart and still get people a salary that is worthy of them doing this incredible work in boosting up their communities and whatnot. So I'm also not arguing, you know, Jeffrey Romoff should make $1 a year or whatever. Like if he's doing a good job getting people care in Western PA, give him the money he deserves. I am totally for that. But what you said is spot on. I mean, that's really where I think we can start to draw a line in the sand and say, hey guys, is he really worth $10 million whenever there's a school across the street who's suffering from them not paying taxes? Like, yeah. Right. Their argument is, well, we have to pay the CEOs competitively compared to the for-profits or else we're going to lose this re- these people who know how to run businesses and we're going to be left in shambles, which that's a perfectly fine argument, but then they have to do their job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How can people find your film and maybe reach out to you if they have any questions? Yeah. So we're working on distribution right now. We know it will be distributed. We just don't know exactly where. So I think the best thing to do is get on the website, hospitablefilm.com, and then join the newsletter because we send updates. We're not going to you know spam your inbox, but we'll let you know where you can watch the film. And then also we have social media as well. We post a lot of stuff about hospitals. So if you're really interested in getting into the weeds of what's going on in the hospital system and you know policy information, but also just kind of useful practical information as well. You can, you know, follow us on Twitter, Inhospitable FLM. That's our Twitter handle or Instagram and and Facebook as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sandra. 
Yeah. We'll link everything that we talked about. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for giving me some of your time. Yeah. I wish we could talk all day. This is great. I really appreciate you taking the time and your interest in the film. Thank you so, 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 so much for tuning in. Find Sandra's film. We'll link everything in the show notes, by the way. They're available at BelovedHolistics.com. There's no reason to not go and see this film. It's just going to open up Pandora's box for you to understand a lot better how and why healthcare is so expensive and perhaps why it's so ineffective in our country. So support the film. You're going to love it. Thanks again to our sponsors. Fit for Birth provides personalized pregnancy and postpartum exercise and nutrition coaching. You can go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved. You'll save 20%. And Organifi, of course, try their pumpkin spice latte. Blend it up with your little hand foamer with some organic whole fat coconut milk and you're going to get such restful sleep. You're not going to look back. It's delicious. It's loaded with antioxidant rich superfoods. You're going to love it. Go to organifi.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on your purchase there. Another way to support the show is to share these episodes with your friends. If you're liking these shows, it's so different from every other OBGYN podcast out there. You have to admit that. And if you want more of these conversations, it's just going to get better from here. Support the show by spreading the word. Get all of your favorite episodes in the hands of your friends and family. They're going to thank you for it. I know it. I know that they are. And then lastly, if you haven't left a review, go to your smartphone digital device. Go and take five seconds to leave a five-star review. Believe it or not, the algorithms within the podcast world only care about how many five-star reviews you have. So it takes five seconds. It really, really supports me and helps me out. Remember, nothing on the show is meant to be construed as medical advice. This is education. This is entertainment. It provides you with the information to make informed decisions for yourself and your family. If you do want medical advice, you can find me again at BelovedHolistics.com. Join my PCA. You'll get access to my Discord server and meet a whole bunch of other people just like you who are asking all the big questions, looking for the best products around, the best insights into risks, benefits, alternatives, etc. And then once you join the PCA, of course, you'll have access to me as a consultant. You can join my collaborator program, etc. That's all available at BelovedHolistics.com. I uh, am super excited about my next guest on the show. Next week, we're going to be hearing from Lindsay Milas, who's a home birth midwife in California. I don't know how she still does it in California, man. It's hard to be a birth worker outside of the hospital system in California, but she's doing it. And she has a lot of really interesting insight, not only into the lifestyle modifications that help to support you in home birth and exercising your autonomy. Remember, if you're not healthy, then your autonomy goes out the window because midwives aren't going to be willing to take care of you and have you in their practice based on, like in California, the very, very strict regulations as to what midwives can and can't do at home. So make yourself as healthy as possible starting at least 90 days before you get pregnant. And that's going to optimize and maximize your ability to exercise your freedom and your autonomy in birth where you want to have a baby, how you want to have a baby, etc. If you're planning to have a birth attendant there, they might have some pretty strict governmental regulations as to what they can do. She talks quite a bit about that, but Lindsay also is willing and open in such a beautiful way to talk about death, especially when death arises around birth, whether it's in the uterus and a baby dies, whether it's a miscarriage or a baby dies after birth. It's a part of being alive where we have to be willing to open our minds and hearts to the idea that sometimes babies die. But if we don't have the language, if we don't have the the experience with this, and we don't have people like Lindsay to help guide us, then there's really, really not much we can do. And we're leaving a lot of people traumatized as a result of our inability and poor equipment to cope with some of these really sad things. So I'm very, very much looking forward to you hearing this episode. And I will see you next week on the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Take care, everybody. Thank you.